I invite you to turn with me this morning to John chapter 18, the Gospel of John chapter 18. As we continue our look at the attributes of God, we talked a little bit last time about how there are two types of attributes according to theologians. There are those that we call uh, communicable attributes, those attributes that God shares with us, and those that are called incommunicable attributes, those attributes that are, are only true of God and no one or nothing else in the universe. <clears throat> Most of the attributes we're going to look at over the course of this series are incommunicable attributes, those things that make God different from all of the rest of us. But, of course, even the communicable attributes, even those things that God shares with us because we are made in His image, we have to remember that we don't have it perfectly like God <clears throat> because of the broken image in us because of our sin. Well, this morning I do want to look at one of those attributes that God shares with us. Not only shares with us, that He expects us uh, to live out. And that is the attri attribute of truth, which also connects with, with trustworthiness and truthfulness as well. And so let's spend some time looking at who this God is that is the God of truth. And we're going to focus our attention particularly on Jesus because there, there's a lot of different places in the Bible that talk about God as a God of truth. But this particular scene has always intrigued me. Jesus before Pontius Pilate and that conversation that goes on between them in the Gospel of John. The background is that Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane by the temple guard. He's brought to the Sanhedrin, which was mostly, uh, almost, almost exclusively, not completely, made up of Sadducees who kind of ran the temple under the, under the chief priests. And they had an illegal meeting of the Sanhedrin during the night and condemned Jesus on a couple of counts uh, on blasphemy, saying he was God, and also on uh, his threat against the temple, or so they believe that he threatened the temple. But those kind of charges wouldn't get the Rome and, and the governor Pontius Pilate too excited. And, and the reason they go to Pontius Pilate is because they want to uh, bring about capital punishment for Jesus. And they don't have the right to do that. Rome has reserved that right for, for herself. And so they have to come up with a different charge before Pontius Pilate because just calling him, just Jesus calling himself God didn't mean anything. According to the Romans, you could have as many gods as you want. They had all kinds of gods. But you could only have one lord or one king, and that was Caesar. And so they changed the charge when they brought him to Pilate to the fact that he said, Jesus said he was the king. He was the king over Judea, not Rome. And that's where we find ourselves as, as they come and take Jesus to Pilate. Verse 28, John 18, we'll be reading verses 28 through 38. Then the, <clears throat> then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If you were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourself and judge him by your own laws. But we have no right to execute anyone, 
they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Of course, Jesus had said he was going to be crucified, which was a distinctly Roman capital punishment. If the Jews had punished him, he would have been stoned. But uh, he is brought before the Romans, and so he would be crucified. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. We'll stop our reading at that point. Let's come to God in prayer. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, as you have inspired this the story to be remembered and recorded faithfully and for our benefit by John. We pray now that you would inspire that same word to touch our hearts and lives, that we might learn what you want us to do and who you want us to be in relationship to the God who is truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have to kind of sympathize with Pontius Pilate. I mean, he attended the Harvard Law School of Rome, and yet he was stuck in some podunk foreign colony in Judea. He was obviously superior to these superstitious religious Jews. He'd bide his time until a real job opened up. And then he runs across this Jewish quarrel. Some rabbi is stirring up the Jewish leaders claiming to be God or at least king. Sounds like a foolish spat to Pilate until talk turns of to crucifixion. So Pilate calls Jesus into his court, possibly to intimidate him with a trial, but he finds Jesus strangely silent until he was forced by law to respond. And then Jesus said things like, the reason I came to earth was to reveal to all the truth. And if you don't listen to me, you're not on the side of truth. And earlier, unknown to Pilate, Jesus had said, I am the truth, or I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, how do you deal with someone like Jesus? And not just Pilate, how do we understand and respond to, to Jesus' ideas about truth? Well, I want to look just briefly at three questions of truth this morning. The first is Pilate's question, what is truth? Pilate knew about truth. He learned it in the best schools in Rome. Truth is a proposition, a logical proof. But he also knew that an ancient debate about truth start, started hundreds of years before by Protagoras, Plato, Aristotle, and others dealt with, is truth objective or subjective? Subjective. 
Now, we don't use those words too much today. Maybe we would say, is truth absolute or is it relative? First, some people believed that truth was objective, that there is an absolute source of all truth. Some might call him God. Others might say, well, there's just truth with a capital T built into the world, built into the laws of nature. And they proved it, and you can read some of those philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, they proved it by noting that there's some things that everybody knew was true. Like, everyone knows 2 plus 2 equals 4. Or that a, that a tree is a plant with leaves on it. Or what the color green looks like. These were all self-evident truths that everyone agreed on, they said. Truth is objective. It's absolute. But others said, no, truth is subjective. It is relative. Relative truth means that everybody has their own idea of what is true for them. And what is true for you might not be true for me. You might say 2 plus 2 equals 4, but I might say it equals 138. You might say a tree is a plant with leaves on it, but I might say it's a furry animal that barks. What you call green, I might call pink. Now, those are silly examples, but what about when it comes to serious things like you shall not kill? Is that true for everybody, or can we take it and leave it? You shall not lie. You shall not covet. You shall not commit adultery. Love God above all. Love your neighbor as yourself. Is that true for everybody? Is it absolute? Or is it simply relative? Maybe I will live by it, but you won't. Now, this is the reason that some people are pro-life and others pro-choice. That some limit sexual activity to within marriage and others say, oh, it's fine for any consenting adults. Or while some say we need to love God and others say God's just a figment of your imagination. Many believe that truth is subjective. It's relative. It's what you make it. And I would suggest today that society is largely a do-it-yourself, create-your-own-truth culture. Everyone makes up their mind what's true for them. So while some still say, well, God in the Bible says, they believe in objective truth, others will say, doesn't matter, what I, this is what I say, because they believe truth is relative. Perhaps this is the argument that led Pilate at, to ask the question, well, what is truth? But Pilate asked the wrong question. The right question is, who is truth? Jesus is saying, in essence, truth isn't a proposition. Truth is not a logical proof. Truth is a person. I am the truth, Jesus said. God is the truth. And so what Jesus is saying is, truth is an attribute of God. An attribute of God. And for some, that's hard to swallow, and perhaps that's part of the problem. 
Because we live in a world where, where truth and trust is violated every day. It's a world of, of liars, of covenant breakers, of lawsuits and divorce courts. In such a world as we live in, what does it mean that God is truth? Well, first, God is absolute truth. This has to do with his thought. God is not ignorant, but he knows everything perfectly and accurately. We humans make mental mistakes, but God does not make mistakes of knowledge. In 1990, France's major dictionary, over 1,700 pages, and it cost $75, which is a lot of money 30 years ago, incorrectly identified three highly poisonous mushrooms as harmless. Three out of 25 on one page out of 1,700 And yet, if someone ate one of those mushrooms because the dictionary said it was harmless, it would cause all kinds of trouble. And so they had to recall 180,000 dictionaries at a cost of $5.5 million because of a mistake of knowledge. We've heard at different times, maybe surgeries done on the wrong patient or the wrong surgery done on a on a patient or or babies mistakenly getting mixed up in in the hospital nurseries. Thankfully, that doesn't happen much. We have mistakes, though, and we have to live with those mistakes, and those mistakes are costly. But the Bible says God is truth. He doesn't make mistakes of knowledge. And that's important when our eternity is in his hands. God is absolute truth, but God is also absolutely truthful. This has to do with his word. Everything God says is true. So God is trustworthy. He doesn't break a promise or ask for a divorce from an unfaithful bride, whether that bride be Israel or the church. God keeps his word. He is reliable in a world where few are. And that means we can claim Every promise he gives in the Bible with absolute confidence. God is true to his word. He's absolutely truthful. And finally, God is absolutely true. This deals more with his deeds. Everything God does is right and good. He doesn't make mistakes of action. Everything he does is for a purpose, and every purpose will come about. Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus. Because God is faultless. And that's important when our lives are in his hand. So what difference does this make? God is truth in thought, word, and deed. Which means we can live with absolute confidence and assurance in him. Both in this life and in eternity. But this all leads to a third question. Are we people of truth? Or how do we respond to a God of truth? And the Bible is filled with calls for us to be people of truth. Truth is a communicable attribute. It's one that God shares with us. It's one that's part of the image of God created in us. And of course, 
because that image was broken because of our sin, it's one that we fail to live up to. Certainly not perfectly. So, we have to ask the question of ourselves, are we people of truth? Which is kind of a high standard in our world today. Are we people of truth? And, and how are we to be people of truth? And the Bible tells us at least three things. First, it says, it means that we are to worship in truth. Jesus called us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, we're going to look at that passage next week and focus on the spirit part of it. But worshiping God in truth means worshiping God as he really is. How he's revealed himself. Not some images we made up of God, like some of the idols of the Old Testament, but by worshiping him for who he really is, who he reveals himself to be in his word. But also by worshiping him truly. That is, not just seeing the truth about God, but but worshiping him as true as we can ourselves. Rather than just going through the motions, we worship him as truly as we can, our, our heart and soul involved in it. Worship in truth. The second thing the Bible says is listen in truth. And listen to truth. Jesus says in verse 37, You know you're on truth's side if you're listening to me. You know you're on truth's side if you're listening to me. So if our lives are not consistent with Jesus' word, with God's word then we're not living the truth. If you ever want a guideline, a rule, or a measure to say, am I living the way God wants me to be to live? All you have to do is look at the Bible. Am I living accordingly or am I living in contradiction? And that leads, of course, listening to the truth leads us to act and speak in the truth. In short, we must emulate God by being true and truthful in thought, word, and deed. We must long to know the truth of God's Word by reading our Bibles, by listening to messages on the Word, by being involved in Bible studies or small groups. We must speak the truth in love, being open and honest with each other. And we must also be true to our promises. As we do this, we will begin to earn people's trust and become trustworthy. But most of all, we will be pleasing God who created us in his image to be people of truth. The God with whom we adventure in the Christian life is truth with a capital T. He knows everything perfectly. He does everything right and good. He is absolutely true and absolutely trustworthy. Are we responding to him with true worship? Are we listening to his truth? Are we emulating him in personal truthfulness? As we begin this new year, it's an important question we ask in a world where truth is not always held high, where truth is played with loosely. Are we going to be people of God in a world that's less than truthful or trustworthy? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are truth because we know that we can listen and 
and hang on every word that you give us, every promise that you give us, and we know that you not only want to accomplish those things, but you can and will. We thank you that you've assured us of that in Jesus Christ, sending him not only to save us from our brokenness, our fracturing of of the image within us, but also um, by promising to us the hope of eternity, that we are adopted children, and and we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are given to us as one who empowers us to be more and more like Jesus, to, to deal with our sinfulness and, and help us become more and more uh, reflective of that image that we were first created with. Help us in this world where we hear lies every day, where we see the lack of trustworthiness in people every day. Help us in this world not to emulate the world, but to emulate Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We pray it in his name. Amen. Part of that truth, we, we confess in lots of different ways. And one confession in song is the song, In Christ Alone. And let's have us sing that to four stanzas and confirm this as truth, the truth that we will live out in our lives, In Christ Alone.